Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Agile Uprising podcast. My name is Janae McConnell, and I am one of the members serving on the Agile Uprising board. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, So we're in the process of revisiting our 12 Days of Agile podcast series that was released a few years ago, where we dedicated one episode to each of the 12 principles from the Agile Manifesto and the board members at the time took turns discussing their experiences and you know hot takes about how that principle shows up in the real world. In this episode, we have Ryan Lockard and Paul Elia covering principle number three, which, if you need a reminder, is deliver working software frequently from a couple of weeks to a couple of months with a preference to the shorter timescale. In this episode, Ryan and Paul talk about this principle and what it means to them. They get into the important technical and non-technical benefits of iterative software delivery. For me, after listening to this episode, a few things really jumped out, and without spoiling all the goodness that lies therein, I will just say that I really appreciated Ryan calling out the fact that releasing frequently is truly one of the best, if not the best thing that can be done to help alleviate risk in a product or in an enterprise. And the more you release, the more you learn. The feedback loops that we have as a result of developing in this manner really do help us learn more about our system, about ourselves, our products, and our users. Um, I feel like we hear about iterations and increments all the time, but I wonder if people understand that there's a significant difference between the two and what that looks like as it applies to the development and delivery of working software. I also wonder if there's enough understanding that agile development actually needs to be both incremental and iterative. Um, I have other thoughts on the definition of, you know, quote unquote, working software, but we can get into that some other time. So without further ado, let's kick off this episode with Paul and Ryan, and we really hope you enjoy it. Hey, this is John Willis, and you're listening to Agile Uprising Podcast. Hey. On the third day of Christmas, my true love gave to me three French and two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. I'm your MC, Paul Elia, and I have with me Ryan Locker. Hey, hey. I, uh, I guess I can't mess up your name if you say it yourself. <laughs> we figured out a way to do it. And we are continuing the 12 Days of Agile with Principle 3. Deliver working software frequently from a couple of weeks to a couple of months with a preference to the shorter time scale. How are we going to kick this off? You and I were just uh, brainstorming a bit before we hit record, and, and, and we seem to be in alignment about going faster, actually decreasing risk. You want yeah. to say more about you know how you're thinking about that? Yeah, I think um, one thing that's important is I remember when I first started reading Jurgen Apello's work in the management 3.0 space, one of the um, the teachings in his workout book, which became one of his latter books, was around um, the importance of setting the stage. And one thing that I think is important for us to talk about is where we're physically recording this. Um, Paul and I are sitting right now in Las Vegas. We're at day zero of the 2017 AWS reInvent conference. It's a Sunday, so we're, we're about to step into about five days of deep immersive learning about the, the one of the largest public cloud providers in the world. 
which is Amazon and their AWS offerings. And I think it would be remiss of us to talk about continuously delivering software, continuously delivering value without acknowledging the, the role that AWS and the public cloud providers play in that, in that space. So Paul and I were, were sitting here just kind of like spitballing, what does it mean to continuously deliver value? And for me, it's a balance of speed and risk. And I think, you know, it's ignorant to look at one without the other. And continuously delivering software is one thing that a lot of organizations talk about and very few actually do. Continuous integration happens in a lot of organizations. Continuous delivery, we usually clump CICD together and say it in one breath without ever actually decoupling the two and understanding the difference. Right. And the only way that you can... CI is, I'm, I'm going to say, easy relative to CD. Continuous integration is relatively easy. It's the man, it's managing the stitching of, of systems and tools together into a way that they, they operate in harmony. Continuous delivery to a production or production-like uh, environment, man, that that is a psychology experiment <laughs> in, in, in a nutshell. And it's all, to me, it comes down to risk. And a lot of organizations think of continuously delivering software as a risky proposition. I actually take the opposite stance and say that if you can continuously deliver software to a production environment where you're actually releasing software in incremental chunks to real live users, you're de-risking your system. And I think we're going to decouple that a little bit today, right? Right. You know, before we dig, you and I are both very technical, Ryan. Uh, and, and the principle does say deliver working software frequently. And for certain, the signatories of the manifesto were technical folks. But, you know, with modern Agile and a lot of the other work in Agile today, we are talking about delivering stuff, delivering work more frequently. <laughs> Product, yeah. Right. Right. So this does apply if you're out there listening and you're not on the software kick like Ryan and I, you know, we want to make sure that we, we speak to you as well. It applies to you too. deliver frequently uh, and deliver on the shortest time scale you can stomach. There's so much goodness with that. You're delivering in shorter batches, which takes risk down. Mm -hmm. If you mess up, there's a way back if you automate. Right. So software or not, but we, you know, I do think we're going to, we can't be here at AWS uh, reInvent in Vegas and not talk about the technical aspects of things. Yeah. And, and you're leaning into one of my favorite metrics, which is mean recovery time. Right. Which it's, it's a very, at least in my mind, I could be wrong. I'm happy to be wrong. It's a software derived metric. Like how long does it take on average for the system to recover from a flaw? Yeah. It's a, and when do you detect the flaw? When do you figure out the solution? Yeah. flaw and when do you execute and get get back to happy and my guess is that even for the non-technical folks that that flaw does not necessarily mean like a log event in a system record or a um, you know a server crashing or something along those measures if, if you work in an HR context if you work in a marketing context there, there probably are flaws in those systems as well that have contextual parity to the the, the, so the software world that Paul and I live and breathe in so Hopefully those those alignments and those um, emulators exist in, in that space. So I'm happy you brought up the signatories because we went through as the Agile Uprising and we interviewed so far 14 of the 17 and Paul and I were actually uh, spitballing about what's it going to take to get the last three mm -hmm. still before he got going here. Hey guys, we know you're listening to the show. We'd love to have you. And really, you want to dish on Agile? You want to do whatever. We want to have you on the show. So we're going to politely ask you to come and complete the chapter on on uh, what we started here at Agile Uprising. Right. And one thing that I've been fortunate in, in pulling off in the last couple 
months and, and in the coming months is being able to speak to that that project that we did and understanding you know what was in the hearts and the minds of those fairly technical folks as they got together in 2001 at Snowbird and what did we learn from that in this series and how does that apply to continuously delivering value and the one thing that I kind of learned was in recent years there's been a lot of focus on frameworks and process and some of the humanities and the humanistics of uh, software delivery and further and further uh, down the line we, we get away from the base of engineering culture and software delivery and making sure that we're delivering something of high value to users in a, in a, in a repeatable pace. And, and it's, it's interesting to me that when we talk about that, we never actually define what a healthy pace is for software delivery. And to me, shorter cycles is better. Absolutely. And I think, you know, Paul, you work, you've worked in a bunch of different industries. We were talking about it tonight. And for me, a short cycle, like when I talk about a short cycle, I'm, I'm usually talking hours in in long cycles. I'm talking a day, like, if I'm not pushing code to production in a day, it feels like it's been a rough day. But other folks in highly regulated industries. Oh no, and I'm in a I'm in a banking environment right now. So so that's a dream right now, and 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 we stand to to make it a reality. I've also been in the governance, risk management, compliance software space, and the thought is, oh no, our customers can only handle something every three or four months. But think about, especially a company that's rooted in cost-based accounting. Mm -hmm. that wants to see high utilization of all the technical people that are producing code, what you're going to do is increase the living daylights out of that batch size. Mm -hmm. But you're actually... Yeah, but the question there... I'm sorry, I know no, I interrupted. No, 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 go, go, go. But why would you do that? Why, why is there a perception that increasing the batch size is better than reducing the cycle time? I don't know that there's reality to it. I think that we need to question everything. But I think there's the perception that the customers in these highly regulated environments go through so much of their own process to vet and accept a new delivery of software that they only want to absorb it every three or four months, mm -hmm. right? And if that's what the customer's going to do, then you might as well be highly utilized and keep banging out new feature. But then that's a huge batch that's building. Yeah, you know it's, I mean? it's, 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 I love this debate. And I, I, I'm only, I'm not picking at you, Paul. No, no, I'm no, picking no, no. at that's, the concept yeah. because here's, here's the reality of it. It's flawed on its surface. No, no, yeah. And it's flawed below the surface yep. as well. So I'm not I'm not actually defending it. I'm trying to oh, I prefer it you did. I'm trying to rationalize it too and, and show that there's so much goodness to the smaller, even if your customer actually says, you know what, I'm only it's let's say it's a true statement that, that most customers are only gonna take the work from you every three or four months. Right. Is that all your customers are gonna do that? Are they all gonna do it on the same cycle? Mm. Do they have to all take it on the same cycle? What if you created releases more frequently and published them somewhere that your customers could come and choose which one they came and took. Let's peel back the onion. Why is it like, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to yeah. mentally de decouple this. So why is it that we think our customers are so resistant to more frequent change? It's probably because we've tried to introduce change more frequently in the past and have introduced flawed change. Yeah, probably th that's right. They, they expect bad. Yeah. So they're bracing for impact. And they do have to dot their I's and cross their T's on the higher regulatory Yeah, yeah no, I'm, I'm right? with you on the regulatory space. Yeah. And then I guarantee you we're going to jump into that here. But why is it that we've lost our way so hard in the engineering space? Like, why is it from an – like, I talked about engineering culture very early on in this podcast. And we seem to have surrendered quality and we seem to have surrendered – boundaries with the, the way that we, we deliver software anymore. And like, we, we've touched on this throughout this series. 
Yeah, this is amazing, Ryan, because, so I participated in a couple of the podcasts for the 12 Days of Agile. Uh, I got attracted to become a member of Agile Uprising through the interviews with the signatories. And you know, what I'm really starting to realize is that these principles are all talking about the same thing. They're actually different sides of the same animal because it all does come back down to similar engineering principles. Mm. We're just trying to use different words and scenarios to get across those principles. The four values are actually pretty darn good. The principles are like clarifying, right? Because we're talking about principle three, deliver working software frequently, but it ties to a lot of the other principles as well. We got to a point where we started doing handoffs a lot in engineering. Mm-hmm. I was talking about this on, uh, we're recording these things kind of out of sequence, even though we will present them to our audience in sequence. But we were talking about principle 11 the other day, and I was being asked about my early career. When I started, I actually was offered a degree in computer science from my university, but I started as mathematics. They didn't have a computer science degree when I started college. This is my year old. I'm entering my fourth decade of work, and and <laughs> and I actually started on a mainframe writing Fortran code. <laughs> no, I haven't touched Fortran in, in in 30 years. But back then we were a a cross-functional team. We didn't have QA people, mm. right? We 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 were all programmer analysts, senior programmer analysts. We might have made a distinction on pay grade, mm-hmm. but we were all expected to be engineers. Yep. And what does that mean? Well, well. You were supposed to be able to think through the problem, solve the problem, test the problem, and ensure that that the solution was real. Right. We ran regression tests every night. We peer programmed. We peer reviewed. We code reviewed. All these things that you know you go in a mainframe environment. Yeah, damn right we did. Mm. And I think along the way, I don't know how it happened, but I saw the pendulum swing, and now I'm seeing it swing back to that kind of thinking. But I saw the pendulum swing to where we specialized the living daylights out of every person and we, we wanted 100% utilization and we stuck cues in between these specializations. And so we made this like bucket brigade of engineering. And I think there's all kinds of miscommunication that occurs when you do that. Ideas get lost. Things get cold from back earlier in the cycle. Mm-hmm. And to keep 100% utilized, you're off as a, as a programmer, let's say, you're off programming the the second and third idea, by the time a tester is realizing a flaw that you had in the first, and to come back to bring you back into the game to fix it, you got to get your head back in the game again. So that, that, that kind of speaks to when I talk about the Agile principles. Like from the 14 interviews that we did, I walked away with a pretty core learning. And I've been presenting that in a series of talks I've been doing this year and I'll be doing into 2018. And I think what I refer to as the base agile principles and what I refer to as the DevOps principles, which is the space that you and I live in now, Paul. Right. There is no real dissonance between the two. They're very much the same. And I think, you know, the idea of of regularly delivering value is very much embedded into that that mindset. And the only way that you can do that with integrity at this point in the game, because of the the post Equifax and the post you know, hacker space world that we live in today, you need to do it with boundaries, you need to do it with responsibility, and you need to do it with integrity. And the only way that you can do that is by managing the pipeline that we work in with the respect that it deserves. Like, we're sitting here at AWS reInvent, and, you know, I have a slide that's been retweeted a bunch of times now, where it basically says the cloud is a, um, 
a, a novel way to create problems at a scale that we've never understood before. Right. And, and I stand behind that. Like we can spin up environments. We can spin up instances uh, with the run of one Terraform script. Right. That exposes so much data to the public world with irrecoverable in, um, problems if we don't take the responsibility at hand. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for us to, when we talk about, you know, the importance of de-risking systems by releasing more frequently, balancing that statement with the fact that we need to make sure that we manage secrets, that we manage data, that we manage security practices before we start talking about code. And, and you know, I love when we talk to the James Grennings of the world, we talk about boundaries and barriers in, in, in the way that we do our test-driven development. We talk to Bob Martin and he talks about using the solid principles and we talk to Martin Fowler and everything that he says. I'm not even gonna try to boil that down to one statement, but we need to do it with integrity. And to me, handling secrets like AWS keys or, or just cloud keys in, in general, handling you know data and handling the um, the compliance aspects of these highly regulated systems that we tend to work in with the in, with the integrity and I hate using the word over and over again, but that's the best word that I can come up with that it deserves is, is super important when we talk about delivering value because regularly delivering software in a shit pipeline is only going to create more problems for you. When we're talking about de-risking systems, we need to start with first principles. And how do we deliver things in a, in a very regulated way with the integrity and the engineering background that you and I are both talking about right, now? Right, right, right. So are you going to build not just technology, but, but the process of like, are you going to do code reviews? Hmm. Are, you going to, are you going to make it part of the process? Are you going to make it easy to see the code changes that are going down the pipe, hmm. right? So or how you, do you automate that, right? Like code reviews to me, you can do to some extent. I realize that, but but I, I, having brains on it, mm -hmm. more than one brain, always produces a better result. One hundred percent. Yeah, and and if you want to hear more about that, go back to our our interview with um with Luel Falco, right. or go back to some of the Ron Jeffries conversations where we talk about pair programming. I mean. You smash two knowledge worker brains together yep. and you are guaranteed to come out yep. with a much better result. But I think my point is automation with, you know, integrity is, is critical because it allows for faster time to market. It allows for like better, that, that mean recovery time comes back stronger. If you build those tests into the system, so much so that on commit, you run through that, that battery of tests, be that, you know, smoke test, be that um, uh, sanity test, be that regulatory test, compliancy test. And you know within seconds or minutes that you've broken the system, that sense and respond trigger that comes from that is so much stronger than waiting for somebody to manually thumbs up, thumbs down something no, in Jira. That's what I'm saying is that the, the 15 years after the start of my career where I feel like it got really bad, where we got really functional siloed, if you will, mm. I don't quite remember everything I did if you're getting back to me three weeks after I did oh, something, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm on to some other challenge and, and that's where my head's at. So I can't really get in there with you. Whereas if we're catching it with continuous integration, it's fresh on my mind. I know exactly what I did. Oh man, yep, I probably did this. Yeah. If the performance just went out the window and an automated performance test just, you know, it, it, before it gets cold, you're, you're tapping me on the shoulder. Well, how about this? I, t I touched on the um, the Equifax leak that happened. March. God, how long ago is that now? It's March of this year. What month are we in? <laughs> <laughs> We're in November. <laughs> All right, so like a few months ago, 
It will be December by the time this airs. But what was the issue with with that? Do you remember? Yeah, well, um, actually, this was a production system that needed to be patched on a cycle. Exactly. And, and what was the, and, issue? What, what, what well, was the issue? I don't like the way the media put it because they pinned it to on one, one person, and, and that's really bullshit. The living daylights out of me, no doubt, man. Bullshit. So when the when the when the uh, uh, CEO of Equifax said, it, there, I saw the headline. There's one person to blame, and I'm like, okay, I got the headline. I'm going to read the article. I hope you're going to say it's me because I was at the helm when this happened. Right. But no, of course not. He threw a system administrator under the bus. Podcast he high did. five. Podcast high five. <laughs> he didn't name the person, but still, that was kind of crappy because what you're saying is a manual procedure wasn't followed. And that's wrong. That The environment, the system is what made that go wrong. Not the one person who didn't catch one machine that's out there in the world and something bad happened. So we were, you and I, just pulling the curtains back, we were just having... We'll call it lunch. We won't call it drinks. We were having lunch a little bit. We were having drinks. Yeah, we were having (laughs) lunch. We were having lunch with some of uh, our colleagues. And in there, we were talking about the uh, the pain of enterprise system patching, right? And if you're listening to this podcast and you work in any sysops type capacity, you're probably nodding your head right now saying, yeah, it sucks. Because of the hoops you have to jump through and because of the regression test that you have to run to patch a production system. That is what caused the Equifax issue. Mm Mm-hmm. It was it was a fear, and it was it was perceived to be a risk play to not patch a production system. Right. And when we talk about like delivering value continuously, you have to remove the manual decision in that space. No longer should it be a binary decision coming down to a human that we update this uh, Apache, right? That was that was the Equifax issue, Apache. Yeah, it was struts. Struts. We, we should be updating that on build for every production release. Well, and, 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 and that wouldn't have done it in this case. You have to actually take your production systems that aren't getting new features actively, and you've got to patch them too. You mean lower level? Yeah, because... Yeah, yeah. No, I'm sorry. So when I say it, I mean... Sorry. Y'all should understand my brain at all times, right? <laughs> Deep spikes down to developer local. Like, yeah, you need to be running the, those updates all the way through your production... Uh, all the way through your delivery system, your SDLC. Even when you're not cranking out new features. You Correct. Need, you need, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So like when we talk about delivering value continuously, we talk about making sure that you're putting boundaries into your system and barrier and, and building a pipeline that is of high integrity. You need to make sure that you're doing that with an expressed intent to update the entire system, not just pushing code from one pair, one paired system to the next paired system to the next paired system, because if there's a flaw in any level of that parity, you've perpetuated that risk through multiple yeah. systems. So we talk now in the DevOps community about not giving servers names, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, you, we used to talk about treating your servers as pets. Now we treat them as cattle. <laughs> and um, I recently was talking to an executive where I, I think I stole this from somebody where we even stopped talking about them as cattle. We referred to them as bacteria because they're momentary, <laughs> right? Right. As soon as we find them, we should kill them and we should spin up a new one because they should be you know, instantiated very, very quickly. Yeah, that's testing the entire system out. Yeah, and by the way, I'm pretty sure I stole that from somebody. So, Paul, we, we're, we're... We're we're going very technical. I want to make sure that in great edits, we can make sure we put an emphasis on some of the non-technical stuff, too. I, I do support that Agile is being used outside of IT. That's great. And so if you're listening and you're thinking, okay, well, you guys are getting real technical. I don't want to lose you completely here. Deliver working stuff frequently mm. from a couple of weeks to a couple of months with a preference to a shorter time scale. I mean, where outside of IT 
can we give an example of uh, delivering on a shorter time scale? So, so I t- I, I, yeah. I've used this example many times. I've probably used it on the podcast before too. Just take like uh, somebody who's going to take trees down at your property. Mm-hmm. When you know, let's say you have a tree that needs to be taken down, and you call for your three quotes, and, and one guy comes out and says, you know, it'll be two weeks before I can get back to you, gives you a quote. The next one says, I got to call it back. Can't give you a price. Not sure when to get back to you. And the third one says. I could take it down today for this price. Mm-hmm. I mean, as long as that price doesn't shock you, don't you want to go with the one that can take care of you right away? You do. And, and you know, I'm going to kind of extend that, that metaphor because I, I, whenever we talk about Agile outside of IT, first place I go is, you know, I've had quite a few conversations with Maria Mattarelli in the Agile marketing space, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. and Nick Cementa. And marketing... Believe it or not, my background, my, my degree yeah. is in marketing. Yeah. I can't believe I'm admitting this. <laughs> and, you know, it, it resonates with me, the marketing stance. And I'm going to ask you, Paul, you and I both know what Canary releases mean, right? Can you just explain real quick what a Canary release is? Well, I mean, so Canary is, is like from Canary in a coal mine. You used to take a Canary down in a coal mine. If, if there was a gas leak in the coal mine, the Canary would die first. Right. right? So that was a safety measure for humans not to die down in a coal mine. So we use that terminology, canary release, to talk about releasing software in an environment where there's low impact. Mm. You, you haven't given it to everybody yet. Right. Right. So you're staging the rollout of that feature. And you're, you're, you're actually testing in production. And you may not, you may not always, you could test, I've heard it say you, you, you test your lower value clients. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. Or you test randomly, yep. which is a little bit more equitable. That's, that's, that's the situation I'm most familiar right. with, where you take 100% of your population, you pull off 1% randomly, yeah. right? And in the marketing stance, I'm... I'm it's I'm, it's A-B testing. Yeah, but I'm like, I'm like looking at Maria in the eyes as I'm saying this, and I'm saying, that's what she's talking about when she talks about these things, yeah. right? You take one aspect of a marketing campaign, rather than rolling it out to an entire 100% of your Correct. population, roll it out to a, like, science, like, you know. You science lemon daylights out of marketing. Yeah. You have to. And if you're, we do this all the time, by the way, in technology. If yeah. you're not doing this in technology, please look up Paul or I. We will explain to you how to do this in technology. And if you're not, you damn sure should be. Mm-hmm. Caught that one. Yeah. But here's the point. You can do this non-technically. Yeah. You, you can launch a marketing campaign via newsletter, via, you know, pointed marketing, uh, Google AdWords. Shit, I'm not really a marketing person. I just pretend to be with my degree. But you take this same concept, which is pretty technical, and you pull it back and you say, okay, from a marketing perspective, how can we take this idea that we have of rolling out this this campaign and prove it before we invest yeah, significant so try dollars in resources? a different format for your newsletter, but try it on 1% of your population. Right. But try it on every. And the same can be said about different areas. You can do it in sales, right? You can do it in HR. You can honestly push out like a sample benefits sign-up package or like I know almost everywhere I've worked, they have like every year you get the – you should get your flu shot email, right? And there's probably a convert if not – Conversion rate that goes with it, yeah, right? Damn it. I'm assuming there is, but holy hell, there may not be. They may not be looking at it, but there is a conversion rate, right? HR people, please start looking at that. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm, I'm like teetering on a heart attack most days. This might push me over the limit. Look at your conversion rates. How many people actually – if you're not getting 15% conversion, oh boy, start testing other options. yeah. yeah. So I actually, it's weird that you and I have never talked about this, but I did a stint in the online lead generation space, and we used to constantly, if you didn't try to beat the best campaign that you had running, you were just waiting to die. 
Yeah, I mean, that just... So you always had to be reinventing your campaigns and just siphoning a little bit of your market. We usually would do like 10 or 15%. We would leave the best that we knew to run, but we would test it. And if an hour in, that really started to convert and better, we started turning the dial, Yeah. right? Yeah. And so one of the distinctions that Martin Fowler will make on, on his websites, love Martin's writings and very short to the point, A-B testing is usually talking about a feature Whereas a canary release, you could be talking about the entire stability of the, of the release, right? Right. Getting back to software. But the idea, again, uh, release something in small badges, see how it goes, get that feedback. So whether you're technical or not, getting that feedback is another important reason why we do things on a short time scale. <laughs> Good luck, <Bob. laughs> Andy, <laughs> that one was for you. <laughs> So honestly, if, if that resonates with you, if you want to learn more about it, ignore the beer cans that you hear. We did an interview with Jeff Goldthalf, shit, about a year ago now, I guess, or a little less. You know, his whole his whole position with Lean UX and his latest book, Sense and Respond, which is glorious if you haven't read it yet, it, it talks right in that space. So listen to that interview and definitely pick up his book. But I think we're kind of cruising into the end here. And, you know, before we started, you asked me, it's like, if you had one thing to take away... Yeah, so here, here's the format. So we're doing this. It's on the 12th. Uh, wait, we're the, we're the third. Third, so On the third day of Agile, my mentor gave to me or my coach gave to me. So what do you want to leave people with that resonates with deliver working software frequently or deliver working stuff frequently if we're going to go generic mm -hmm. from a couple of weeks to a couple of months with a preference to a shorter time scale? What would your coaching be for someone to take away? My simple coaching, and it, it sounds it sounds very easy on the ears, and I, I promise you I'm not remiss in understanding the psychological impact here. Releasing more frequently de-risks the enterprise and de-risks the product significantly more than anything you could possibly do, right? You get smaller batch sizes. You get feedback faster. Yeah, but you need to treat that responsibly. And you can't just start releasing non-tested software. You <laughs> can't just start. Not, that's not what we mean by continuous delivery or continuous right. deployment. Worse yet, you need to treat it with the integrity and the responsibility yeah. that is bestowed upon us. Like my assumption, you know, you'll see me in the wild. I'm sure in the coming months and years, the majority of the people that listen to us are somewhere in the SDLC value chain. And you know, you're either an engineer or yeah. you're associated with an engineer. You're a scrum master. You could be an uh, agile coach. Uh, you could be a product owner, and this is this this. I'm looking at Paul. And I'm, I'm I'm not looking at Paul now. This is my last podcast as a member of the board with the Agile Uprising, and I kind of want to go full circle here. And the first podcast we did with uh, with a guest was with John Kern, and John has been great to the the Agile Uprising. He's actually been a mentor to me personally, so much so that we were texting recently. And in the very first podcast we had with him. And in every conversation I've had, with, I've had with him since, he always refers to growing your brain. As an engineer associated with the SDLC or as somebody that's interested in de-risking an, an, an enterprise or an, a company or a product, you should be growing your brain. And everything that you do should be influencing the learning that you have about your system, your software, or yourself. And building in those, those, feedbacks, those feedback loops and shortening those feedback cycles is imperative to growing that brain. Yeah. Learn what your customers are doing. Learn how they're responding to the changes you make in smaller batches so that you can sense and respond from those changes. And if you're a product person and you're still with us, God bless you because we went pretty techy here. Learn what those system logs mean 
and it's scary. I know it's scary as a, as a product person that has never get, never... Your, get your teammates to, to give it to you in a way that's consumable, actually, you know? Yeah, but I promise you this, as a product person, as a BA, as somebody that makes the prioritization calls, or even, even higher up the food chain as a VP, those system logs will become your Bible in the next two to three years. Mm -hmm. I fucking guarantee it. Yeah, I, I really think that we're going to instrument better... I, I'm working on it now. I see it happening around me with my peers. We're going to instrument this data better so that the business can use this information. You, you don't need to be rooting through system logs. That's that's not that's not a valuable use of your time. It should be graphical. It should be consumable and understandable. So if you take anything away from this podcast from me, it's it's that 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 actually continuous deployment de-risks your system. It sounds insane. I know it does. And I've had these conversations with executives and with, with mentors in the past that have pushed back on me. The more you release, the more you learn. The yeah. more you learn, the more you make your system solid. Yeah. And the more solid your system is, the happier your users yeah. will be. That is at the core of Agile. And that is at the core of DevOps. And it, the more you do that and the closer you get to real-time releases and the closer you get to real-time feedback, the better system you're building and the better practitioner you're becoming. And you're never going to be perfect. It's all about learning. It's about learning yourself, learning your code, learning your system, and learning your users. Good Lord, I left that out. But make sure that you're doing that. And when you find yourself having an opportunity to improve that, you should be jumping into that space. That's good. So what you just said gives me a thought, and then I want to close with what I had prepared. At the time that Snowbird was occurring, I was already doing one of the variants that didn't stay popular, and I understand why, but Spiral. <laughs> and and Jesus, I was just year old. Dude, I, I was 11 years into my career by the time Snowbird occurred. So, so, and, and I was getting paid to program when I was in college. So, so I've been doing this a while. But, but Spiral, I thought, man, when, when, when I learned about the work that was done in Snowbird, I was like, I'm really good with, you know, I, I like Spiral. I'm good. And I would have been on the to a couple of months was fine back then. I was. And one of the things that I learned over my career, and it was about product ownership. Now, I would later actually serve in product ownership roles. But one of the things I learned is that business doesn't always have it right. That was one of the things younger in my career as an engineer that I was like, I just wanted to worry about not throwing code away. Mm -hmm. That was what I was trying to optimize for. When what you also have to optimize for is the idea might be bad in the first place. Yep. you got to find out before you build too much stuff. Yep. Right? So, so my day three, what I would leave to you in coaching, though, is to run a fire drill every once in a while. Brent the release system. Brent, single, Brent, Brent the system. Release a single line of code. Mary Poppendick, right? She'll talk about how quickly can you release a single line of code. Yep. It's perfect. So make a stupid code change. Like if, you, if it's a website, put an HTML comment on a page somewhere. But run yourself through the paces and make sure that when an emergency really does occur and you really do need to get it out the door, that you pardon that system for doing so. No, I completely agree. Yeah. And I think it was Mary, and I appreciate you for saying that. Like she, she made the comment. Somebody that has me by a few years, actually. It's nice to be talking about somebody that that, that might <laughs> that I might be younger than. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Mary. But, but Mary made the made the point that like your system should be judged by how long it takes for one line of code to make it through the system. Yeah. And that's exactly the point. Thank you. A comment is a line of code, regardless. Well, she came up through through the era where we didn't call ourselves programmers and, and well she was a 3m engineer yeah engineers yeah yeah so cool yeah no this is good uh dude i totally enjoyed it and i hope our listeners have enjoyed it 
the obligatory close. If you like this episode or didn't like it, have something you'd like to add, please give us some feedback. Subscribe to hear future episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcast platform of your choice. Join the coalition at coalition.agileuprising.com and follow us on Twitter at Agile Uprising. Until next time, this is Agile Uprising, signing out. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So... At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable. It's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.